didn't mind what I did, but I always felt like this is where I belonged from finance into sports business. You know, I know there's a lot of publicity around, you know, a bunch of jobs out there and not enough people to fill them. And it creates this false understanding that you can come out of school and just line up the opportunities and pick and choose, you know, the one you want. You know, I want that type of person that that's really willing to run through walls to get to what they want. Not for me, but because that's what they want. This is the Work in Sports Podcast. Here's VP of Content and Engage Learning at WorkinSports.com. Brian Clapp. At the end of every year, I go through and chart all of our podcast guests, categorizing them into groups based on career paths. So marketing guests, sales guests, esports, coaching, betting, 22 categories in all. As you can imagine, this activity is beneficial for a multitude of reasons. It lets me see where we are light in our coverage, and it allows me to analyze how diverse we are with our guests. What became apparent at the end of this analysis for 2021 is that we hadn't covered much from the world of sports finance, which is a big miss. Because like it or not, dollars are what make the world go round, and financial acumen, especially as it revolves around sports business, is a skill that will always be in demand. Enter today's guest, Bob Melandro. Bob is the founder and managing partner of Whitecap Sports Group, a sports mergers and acquisitions and advisory firm located in Tampa, Florida. Whitecap has a primary emphasis on sports team ownership transactions. How cool is that? Imagine for a second being really, really wealthy. I know it's fun to dream, right? And, you know, you're thinking to yourself, you know what? I've got a lot of money. I'd like to own a part of a minor league team or a pro team or an emerging league, Bob and his team help investors vet opportunities to get ownership stakes or outright ownership of sports franchises and then guide them through that entire process from a financial viewpoint. Now, before you go thinking, yeah, I'm not in that league. This isn't really relevant to me. Bob understands the value of finance knowledge in sports and has worked in the industry in a variety of capacities over the last 25 years. His insight and knowledge is beyond compare, but what's most interesting about Bob is that he wants to lead, he wants to share, and he wants to advise the next generation, which is the attitude we look for on this podcast. So buckle up and get ready to learn a lot. Here's Bob Malandro, managing partner of Whitecap Sports Group. Hey, Bob. How are you doing today? Thanks a lot for joining me on the show. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me today. This is really cool because I've been in the industry for a really long time. I've interviewed lots and lots of people in the industry and never in your realm. I didn't even really know this was, I mean, it totally makes sense once I read about what you guys do and it it makes complete sense to me, but I just never realized it was much of a thing. So it's it's fun to get into this conversation and start talking about Whitecap Sports Group. So let's start here. Whitecap is a sports investment banking firm who advises investors on how to get into professional team ownership. You're the managing partner. How did you get here? Like, how did this all happen for you? Yeah, no, happy to happy to share my experience. I, I didn't quite land here. I did. I did. I was the founder of the company about six years ago when I relocated from uh, New York to uh, Tampa. Uh, but I think your your overall question is how did I get down this trajectory? And um, yeah. And uh, it, it was, I, I guess, somewhat unique. Um, like a lot of people out of school, I, I worked on Wall Street. I had a background in, in finance and financial services, did that for a number of years. 
had a somewhat of an intersection with sports marketing uh, right around that um, cliched proverbial midlife uh, part of my career and, um, and, and, and ended up working for um, a sports M&A firm uh, out of the Mid-Atlantic that was uh, their, their main focus was working in minor league sports. And they did a lot of transactions in minor league baseball, minor league hockey and the like. And then from there, I, I bounced to another firm that got involved in larger deals. We intersected with a couple of major league opportunities and some larger capital raises. And then I really got the bug to start my own firm, which I did uh, somewhere around 2015. And um, you know, we are, as you said, squarely in the business of putting investors into sports-related opportunities. And uh, we, we've had a really nice ride over the over the last five or six years. It's uh, it's exceeded my uh, my wildest expectations. It's really cool to look through your. Uh, you know, past clients, suite of leagues that you've worked with, uh, Major League Baseball, NHL, NBA, minor league sports franchises, like you mentioned, esports leagues, and even, you know, startup sports leagues, kind of the newer leagues that are developing. Give us some perspective here and a little bit of context. When you're talking about investors, are you talking about, or people that want to take ownership of a team, are you talking about minority stakeholders, somebody that wants to get a piece of the pie, get in on the action? Are you talking about full-on ownership, majority, like, this is my baby now. What are we? What are we talking about here? Yeah, really, it really could be either or. Uh, to put it in, maybe I guess the proper perspective. When a lot of people, you know, hear about transactions in our industry, they mostly hear about the you know the largest ones, right? So the New York Mets are being acquired, or right. um, Denver Broncos are now rumored, obviously, to uh, to potentially be acquired by group led by Peyton Manning. Those are the things that people hear about on a regular basis, and that's why I get asked a lot of times: Is there even that much activity? Like, you know, how? Yeah. How do, you, how do you get involved? There's only like two or three things that happen an entire year. And that's really, um, that's, that's misinformation. Um, it is true to an extent in the sense that those are the big deals that get done. But in our industry, there is a an underbelly of transactions that that is quite enormous. And it covers everything in minor league sports. And it covers, as you alluded to, these small, what we call LP or limited partnership stakes or minority interest stakes in major league teams. And in that last category, uh, business has been booming, you know, across the board for a lot of firms. Uh, it seems like you can't read the news like at all without hearing about somebody's buying a piece of a team, whether it's a, you know, an entrepreneur or an athlete or a celebrity. You know, everybody's kind of getting involved in this, you know, alternative asset class, and it's uh, it's been a, a really attractive space that that people have been gravitating to, and that that's what we play. We're not really scaled like a big investment bank that's going to chase down these three billion dollar full acquisitions, although we we could and likely do bring investors to those deals. Um, our sweet spot, as I tell people um, when I speak with them usually is, you know, I would say anywhere between a million and 500 million, which covers everything in minor league sports and most of these minority equity interest or LP type transactions in major league sports. And we've, I would say, you know, most of these are not made public, so it's hard to say you know who's done you know what deals in the industry. But I would say we've done as many as any other firm over the last two years. We've we've done quite a few. This is so fascinating, and I play this game all the time with my wife when we say like, okay, so if we hit the lottery, what are we going to do? And I'm like, I'm buying a minority piece of the Red Sox somehow, right? So now I, now I know who to call. Um, yeah. How hard is it from your world to vet and understand who is serious, who is realistic? Because I would think. That's a lot of time and effort on your part to get somebody to this transaction point. Um, how does that work where you really evaluate and understand who's serious, who's genuine, who can follow through so you're not wasting a lot of time in this process as well? 
Yeah, it's not an exact science, right? There are times, of course, where you know, you're going to go down a path with somebody and they're going to disengage for one reason or another. Usually it's not because they're not serious. I would say what we do a really good job, and I have, I have a whole staff and that this is their only job is to research and vet people that I speak yeah. to. So you know, we vet people to make sure they have the capital. Um, we make sure they have the interest. We make sure that this is suitable uh, for their objectives. Okay, and we we also want to make sure that they're a sophisticated enough investor, uh, because when you look at sports acquisitions and the way these teams are valued, they don't look like any other industry. Um, it's not it's, it's definitely not the same metrics applied uh, to get to a certain number where you know the investment makes sense, and you have to make sure that the person looking at it understands that that they have sophistication, and it's not just somebody. Uh, no disrespect. They just won the lottery and maybe oh, hey, all, of yeah. all those proceeds, all those proceeds into, into I, I that know who investment. I am. You know, like I'm, I'm not ashamed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not in that market. Uh, no, I find this. Okay. So I do, I find this extremely fascinating. What is the, the pitch to somebody then, or the, to help them understand the real value of ownership, taking an ownership stake, especially if it's somebody that maybe isn't a traditional, you know, sports uh, in this ownership kind of circle, you know, maybe they have money from other things. Maybe they had an investment that took off maybe or, or uh, innovation that took off or whatever. And, and they're looking into this as an alternative asset class, like mm-hmm. you're saying. What is that pitch from you guys to kind of present them with this opportunity and say, this is why it's worthwhile to invest in sports in this way? Yeah, you got to be really careful when you pitch anything of an investment in nature, because there's obviously laws and regulations around what you can and, and can't say or shouldn't, shouldn't um, you know, make assumptions on. Um, you can point to the past, though. And if you look at major league sports from a historical perspective, these assets have done nothing but appreciate, um, unlike other things that you could invest in over the long term, whether it be the stock market or real estate that have its ups and downs and may appreciate long term. Um, sports certainly has appreciated long term, but there's never been anybody who's bought an NBA team and sold it for less, for instance. So, you know, there's no there's no history uh, pointing uh, to that type of you know risk risk to principle as you would say. So when, when we have conversations with people, we we normally would point to the fact that you know a couple of things. It's a it's a long term um, capital appreciation play. I mean that's typically the reason to do it, and that knocks a lot of people out of the box. A lot of people when they invest, they want income, they want distributions, and that's their investment yeah. philosophy. And you know I don't begrudge anybody for having uh, the, that type of criteria. Sports acts very very differently. You typically do it because you're going to enjoy the asset in some capacity. I mean, some people don't. Some people write a check and you never hear from them again. But a lot of people do it because they have connectivity uh, to a team. You mentioned the Red Sox a short while ago. Like that would be a passion play. But it would also, in all likelihood, um, make for a good investment um, if, yeah. if, if it was to perform as it did in the past, which is why LeBron James is in the Red Sox, or at least in Fenway Sports yeah, group, right. um, at this time. We're not on the same. We're not, LeBron and I aren't quite in the same ballpark, so we'll let him have his little stake there. Not yet. <laughs> in any business development, marketing, or sales roles, you spend a lot of time determining what your target market is. Like, who are those people you're trying to talk to and, and attract? Who are those most likely to use your services? How would you characterize your target market in this world? Yeah, the short answer, because these transactions are larger in nature, or, you know, we're only talking to, you know, quote unquote, millionaires and billionaires, but that overly simplifies it. You know, there, those two categories have become very diverse in, 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 in recent years, right? It's not, it's not 
your traditional sources of capital, right? You have a lot of entrepreneurs that maybe five, six years ago were not even on the radar and now they're billionaires, right? There's a lot of new new money, you know, coming into play. There's people who run private equity funds, hedge funds. There's of course old, you know, old, old money, as they would say. And, you know, another target, uh, most people don't realize this, are other sports owners. If you look at how many people own more than one sports asset, that's an ideal target for us because that's somebody who already has gone down this path. They've already made the, the determination that they want to be in this industry. They've already vetted a professional sports team. They understand the, the, the nature of how these investments work. And, you know, they're already kind of, you know, pot committed, so to speak, into the industry. Yeah. And, um, and they're typically, you know, good, good prospects for us. And if you look at how many sports owners own more than one team uh, or own minor league teams and major league teams or own different types of assets that are correlated, um, you know, that's how we make the determination. A few months back, we had on a guest, uh, an executive of the Fan Controlled Football League. New startup league started a year ago. Marshawn Lynch is invested in it, a lot of other entertainment figures. And I, it was kind of one of those, okay, that's interesting. But I was one of the people that probably sat back and said, yeah, I'll wait and see if this takes hold at all. And they've done really well. I, I'm curious for your point of view, they've, they've really tapped into a younger market. They're similar to esports, which you guys have gotten involved in. Mm-hmm. I'd imagine this is kind of a trend you have to keep an eye on. Is this a new approach to ownership and fan can, being involved in it? And they do. They, they have ownership stakes that are out there for general public to invest in. Do you look at these trends and say, okay, this is this is interesting to see this take hold? How does that kind of uh, strike you? Yeah, most definitely. If you look at sports or sports business or, or sports teams, you know, one of their highest priorities is fan engagement. So whether that be engaging fans at the gate or inside a stadium or an arena or through digital media uh, in, in some sort of consumption fashion, um, teams realize that their economics is going to be driven by fan engagement in some way, shape, or form. So this is just another way to make feel, fans feel like they're, they're part of the organization or part of the, you know, part of the league. And um, I, I think you will see more of that a, as time goes on. I mean, there's, there's major league teams that have you know, uh, you know, fans as, as shareholders. And uh, I, don't, I don't know if that's going to necessarily be you know, kind of a tsunami across the board, but you'll see you'll see more and more instances of this pop up. And as new leagues, um, you know, try to get you know try to differentiate themselves and try to capture market share, you know, that's another way to do it is to is to captivate an audience um, by engagement. Um, and and in, in some cases, it's it's ownership, as you mentioned. Yeah, I mentioned esports earlier. Another massive growth sector for our industry. You guys have worked with Overwatch League. Where do you see this sector headed? And are there other trends that you see emerging like esports did? Because in a way, esports kind of came out of nowhere. I guess that's giving it, probably undercutting it a little bit. But it's grown rapidly. It's been more popular than I had probably anticipated. Yeah. It's an opportunity. Um, what do you think about esports as a, as a growth market? And then in, additionally to that, are there other trends that you're kind of monitoring that could be interesting in this landscape? Yeah, esports is with us, you know, for the long term. I think they had a kind of a quasi bubble, you know, a number of years ago where everybody flooded the space and, and valuations went through the roof. And then they've come back down to earth. That's not necessarily what I would consider a negative trajectory. I think it just kind of settled it where it belonged at, at this point in its in its growth and its evolution. 
Um, but I think if you, you know, you look at esports as an industry and, and the demographic involved and, and, you know, just the nature of, of, again, of engagement and the type of sponsors that are committed to the sport, um, you know, there's, there's nothing but white space there, you know, so I think, you know, it now is probably a better time to get involved in esports than maybe even three years ago where things were, you know, really at their crest. Um, but I do think there's a long runway there and it, it will be a very, very successful industry for sure. As far as other things, um, you know, there's always going to be things that are coming up that are kind of cutting edge that are trying to look like something that's maybe a proven commodity, but maybe do it a little bit differently. So, you know, we're seeing things, for instance, in like rugby sevens that's coming down the pike. We see three on three hockey leagues. We see seven on seven uh, football leagues. You know, we we see things like that that are getting people's attention. And then you see things that are, you know, kind of a hybrid of technology and sports betting and, you know, performance-based, you know, and, and, and of course, everything's kind of tied together by analytics, which is another, you know, going to be a behemoth, you know, uh, vertical inside the sports industry and probably is already there uh, for the most part. But um, those are where the trends are, you know, I would say over the next five to 10 years. It is amazing the appetite for sports that never seems to cease. Like it, it's, whether it's esports or other high-profile ones, but then you throw in, I mean, I see Cornhole leagues and axe throwing mm-hmm. and action mm-hmm. sports and whatever. It just seems like yeah. there's always something new being created. And so the opportunities never cease, I would imagine, from your side of things. Whenever I have a guest on with your level of experience and background in the industry, I love to get into a little bit of their business philosophy too, a little bit of their hiring and their culture and their building from within. Let's start broad and then we'll get a little bit more specific. You obviously have a deep background in finance. We talk a lot about revenue generating roles in the sports industry always being in demand. How important would that be today if you were advising young people and saying, learning finance, learning that side of the business is going to be instrumental to your growth? What do you think there? Well, I think it depends on where you want to go, you know, with that finance knowledge. You know, there's certainly uh, positions, jobs, careers in, in the sports industry that are more heavily leaning on finance that you certainly would need, you know, an enhanced knowledge or enhanced degree to be able to perform successfully. Uh, but there's other things that are quote unquote sports business that, you know, maybe need more of a rudimentary understanding of, of how things work, you know, to be successful. And maybe you're going to learn more by doing, you know, on the job than you will necessarily uh, you know, prior uh, to to uh, coming on board, I think in our industry specifically, you know, we there there is this optic, of course, you know, that we are we you know we, we do M and A work, we do investment banking, and, and we do, and obviously those things are very finance oriented. But you know, there's in every organization there are different you know departments or or different um, you know silos uh, inside any organization where people can fit in that have different skill sets. So, for instance, you know, we have a, we have a research desk. And, you know, that's their whole job is to do research and to help us vet, you know, people that we are going to speak with. And that does not require any particular you know, finance background. Um, however, we've also had people that have started on a research desk that have, you know, uh, gained knowledge um, you know, of our industry and our processes through that who have come to me and then subsequently said, you know what, 
I'd like to work on the other side of the house, which is the investment banking side. And then, you know, that's a whole nother level where, you know, you have to, these, these are securities transactions for all intents and purposes. So you have to go through FINRA and you have to go get licensed, you know, number of different exams to, you know, credential yourself as an investment banker or to do private placements, uh, et cetera. So it really, it really depends. The way to answer that question is it depends on what, what role you want to fulfill in an organization. And that's going to more or less determine either what you need to know coming in or what you'll learn on the job. Our industry is going through a lot of changes. I mean, obviously, the pandemic has changed things from, you know, fan engagement standpoints, safety protocols, and things of that nature. But even broader, I think we've gone through a lot of innovation over the last 10 years. Things have continually changed. The idea of getting into the industry is daunting. What should expectations be for new grads and career changers and people want to, that want to enter the, the sports industry? Yeah, I think I think getting into any industry, it's all about differentiation because, you know, I know there's a lot of publicity around, you know, a bunch of jobs out there and not enough people to fill them. And it creates this false, I think, understanding that, you know, you can you can come out of school and just, you know, line up the opportunities and pick and choose, you know, the one you want. It doesn't really work like that. It's still very much, you know, one sided in the other direction. These, these you know, any type of job that's going to give you any type of meaningful involvement in the sports industry. They're scarce to few and far between and employers can and, and will be very selective in who they, you know, choose to have on their team. So I would say, you know, what what to expect is you're going to expect heavy competition, but I would say what you want to be mindful of is how to differentiate yourself. I'm I'm constantly shocked at how few people will go out of their way to differentiate themselves. There, there's it, it is very obvious, I think, at times how many people when they're looking for an opportunity, just sling resume after resume after resume. And you can tell from the ones you get that there was no, you know, there, there was no correlation between, you know, what you're offering and what they're giving you. And yeah. so that's why I always feel, and, and I have counseled people on this in the past, is if you see an opportunity and you want that opportunity, take five minutes, take 10 minutes, maybe even take 15 minutes and have enough knowledge about that company that when you approach them and you are making a case for yourself, you're telling that company what skill sets you have that directly correlate to the needs of the firm and towards the business they're in. And, I, and whenever I get a cover letter or any type of overture that does that, I will always give that person a, a serious look. And in all likelihood, I'll, I'll give them an interview if they go out of their way to uh, show me that they know what I do and they are eager to point out, you know, where their skill sets would fit into my company. Usually I just get, you know, an automated resume through, and, and I get a lot of them. I mean, we'll put up an ad yeah. and we get 200 resumes in a day, but, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't really pay much attention to those. I think that's such good advice. And, and, you know, we see people all the time who on their cover letter or on their LinkedIn profile will say, I want a position that follows my passion for X, Y, and Z. And it's like, no, no, no. You tell me how you're going to solve my problems at this organization. Mm -hmm. How are you going to fit what we need here? Yep. I'm not hiring you because I want to give you what you want. I mean, yeah, that's great and all, but really, I need somebody who can solve my problems. That's so right. tell me how you can fix those. Yep. Agree. So let's talk about interviews a little bit. It's one of my favorite parts of the hiring process because I think it's that first phase where you really get to understand somebody and get to kind of put, the, put them in a position where you get to kind of see how they can handle themselves. Um, it's a hard process. It's time consuming. It's difficult for employers too. I mean, it's a lot of pressure to bring the right person onto your team, but nothing is better 
then bringing in that right person and watching them flourish, it can really propel your business. When you conduct interviews, what creates good or bad first impressions and how important is that? How important that is that to your process? You know, cliche to say it sounds. I mean, first impressions are are very potent. I mean, they, they go right to the subconscious and you form an opinion about somebody, whether you feel comfortable with them, whether you have confidence in them, whether you whether you get a, a, a good sense as to their 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 level of aptitude and and um, you know assertiveness just from nonverbal signals as, as much as everything they may put on a resume or everything they say to you. So, you know, that first impression to me is is absolutely critical. And and there's plenty of people that, you know, we've we've not hired um, as a result of that. So, you know, you know, if you ask me to elaborate, it is, you know, the typical things that I, you know, I think are not going to be earth shattering, but it's it's going to be your appearance, right? Because if you don't take the time to look good for an interview, um, I can't imagine you would take the time to look good to when you come to work. And when I say look right. good, I mean professional, right? So you always want to look professional in an interview. You want to be, you always want to make eye contact. You always want to be engaging. So I meant to mention this last question you asked about, you know, when somebody puts forth an effort to be noticed. I once had a, a job that I really wanted a number of years ago. And the person who was at the helm of that company had recently wrote, written a book. I say recently within the last year. So it wasn't, wasn't a bestseller or anything like that, but it was kind of a very niche book for that industry. So I went out this before, you know, you can buy these things on Amazon. And I went out, <laughs> I went to Barnes & Noble, I bought the book, I read the book. Yep. And then when yep. I reached out to that company, I cited, you know, what I learned from the book and how I felt, you know, those values align with mine. And I got the job. So um, I'm not saying I don't have any books for people to read, but um, but I'm saying like that's an example of going that extra mile to to differentiate yourself and show you know that this matters to you and and that you you are willing to go. If I'm willing to go the extra mile in in an interview, um, then it's fair to assume that I would do it in my day to day activities. It's it's such great advice. I remember having. Brian Killingsworth, who's the CMO of the Vegas Golden Knights on the show, and we were talking about his hiring process. And he said one time he had somebody apply for a job and included their pitch research document on why Vegas should invest in an esports team. And he said, you know, there may have been some things that weren't great about their report, but it did show that extra initiative. It did show that extra layer of care. And I could see that they would be more interested in going deeper into these problems and scenarios. And that's differentiation, right? Like these little things you're talking about, first impressions and et cetera, that's taking yourself out of the pack of resumes and yeah. differentiating and standing out in somebody's mind. Yeah. It doesn't always have to be a research report, but it can be just those, those little things, reading the book, being involved in the process and really yeah. can elevate you in the whole conversation. Yeah. And it, and it's just the little things, you know, I think, I think some of that has devolved over the last 10 or 20 years, just, you know, simple social skills and, and, and comfort you know, talking to a stranger, so to speak, right? That's not something yeah. that people are very comfortable doing now, but it is essential in my business. We talk to strangers all the time. So, you know, you have to be able to do that. You have to be comfortable. Um, you know, we're not a cold calling organization, but somebody still has to be comfortable on a phone. Somebody has to be comfortable like this on, on let's say, a yeah. Zoom, um, certainly in person, you know, because we want people comfortable networking or going to industry events and being able to articulate what the firm does and what they do. Uh, in a professional way. So these are kind of the skills that don't necessarily fall on a resume, but, you know, you can pick up, I, I think early on in a conversation, whether somebody's comfortable in those, in those uh, you know, types of situations. I think there's far too many people, I think due to technology 
and just cultural, you know, the way we're set up culturally that that would rather just, you know, kind of be in a cubicle with their laptop and not have to get up or, or be home and, and not have to yeah. get up all day. And, um, you know, maybe there's probably plenty of industries where that fits perfectly fine, you know, with, with the, with the um, requirements of those jobs. But, you know, in, in our work, um, you know, we're in a very engaging uh, type of industry and, and you have to be good at those things. Are there certain um, benchmark skills or qualities or attributes you look for, like a certain bar that certain people need to hit to work as part of to white cap? Are there certain things that are that are like you look at it culturally, you look at it in mission statement or whatever, and you say, this is what we need out of people coming to work at our at our organization? Yeah, what I what I want is I'll, I'll tell you this. This is something, this is a wish list of mine, but I would say it's not something that's prevalent. So I'm always looking for this. And then sometimes I get it, but, you know, I'm always looking, it's going to kind of maybe not come off the way I mean it, but I'm always looking for somebody like myself. Like I'm looking for somebody, when I look back on my own trajectory and my own career aspirations and, and, and the jobs I've held along the way and how I've built up my career, I've always been the type of person that would come in early, would stay late, not because I have to, because I want to succeed. I want to be better than the person next to me. I'm very highly competitive. Um, if there's a contest at a company, I'm going to win it. I, I'll I'll start playing mind games. I mean, before the contest even begins, and you know, so I'm <laughs> hyper competitive like that. And you know, I want that type of person that that's really willing to run through walls to get to what they want. Not for me, not to make me money and to make my company money, but because that's what they want for themselves. You know, they want to be successful. They want to, you know, earn or they want to grow in, in you know, certain skill sets or, or in experience and, and really having a hunger for something. As you mentioned earlier, a passion for something is so, yeah. so important. And it's it's more of a it's more of a wish list than, you know, a, a reality in, in many cases. But, you know, I not one to say that it couldn't be developed. So sometimes you get somebody that's maybe has not really found their stride in those areas, but you know, in the right culture with the right reinforcement, um, they can get there. Uh, no, it's it's interesting. We, we talk a lot about competitiveness and and curiosity and like just your overall compete level, you know, and, and being coachable. Like 100%. we like to have people who can learn and are open and can be trained and worked with. How does somebody give that off in an interview? Because I think that's something that's hard to sometimes get across with these soft skills is rather than just saying like, I work hard, I'm passionate, I'm this, I'm that, like you're ascribing labels to yourself. How can somebody really convey that and convince somebody like you across the table that they are those things that you want and they do have that competitive nature? Well, ask more about the company. Ask more about the person who's interviewing you. Not necessarily personal questions, but ask ask questions about what the company's vision is and what the company expects from you know a certain employee or a certain department. And instead, what what you do get um, most of the time, or a lot of the times, is somebody will be very eager to tell you what they want, right? You know what their expectations are. Of the company, you know, this is how much I want to make. This is when I want to work. This is, you know, they'll ask, they'll ask, you know, what kind of benefits do I get, for instance? And those are those are important questions. I'm not saying those are irrelevant, but I think if you want to make a good first impression, is you start showing an interest in the person you're talking to and and the company more the company than the person, of course. And I think for me, if I felt somebody was very interested in Whitecap Sports and and growing Whitecap Sports and being part of a growing organization. And if I felt that would 
you know, be something that would energize them to perform at a certain level, I'd have a high degree of confidence in at least, you know, getting to a second interview and, and possibly further than that. But, you know, a lot of times, again, you know, I'll sit across from somebody and, and it's, you know, more the, you know, the former conversation. It's more about, you know, somebody sitting there saying, so tell me, you know, what does YCAP do for their employees? We do a lot. I mean, we, we have, a, yeah. we have a, 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 a slew of things that we do above and beyond for people, for people who, who work hard and who you know, fit, fit our culture. So we'll finish up with this. I'm so appreciative of your time. It's such a cool industry and it's great for me to learn more about it. I know our, our audience will really, really appreciate this conversation. As you look back over your career, you've experienced, you've seen a lot, you've been in, at a lot of different companies. If a college student came up to you now and said, oh, wise one, what advice would you give me to set myself up for career success? What advice would you give them? What guidance would you provide? I get asked that actually from time to time. Um, two things. I, I would say one, be patient. Right, because you know we're in a we're in a I want it now um, society, and it just doesn't work that way. Typically, if you're building a career, you have to be patient. And I think more important than that, you have to come to some sort of determination on what what you want your career path to look like, and you have to articulate that to the people you're working with. Okay, so for instance, somebody comes to work for me, I would want to know. I would I like helping people all the time. I don't want people to get better. I want them to grow. I don't expect yeah. that every 25-year-old that may come work with me is going to retire at Whitecap Sports in you know 40 years. That's an unrealistic expectation, and and, uh, and unrealistic is an understatement. <laughs> um, but what I would like is to get them to a better place at the appropriate time. So I would like to know what is that better place? What do they want to learn while they're working for my company? You know, obviously, I want them to be productive and and to and to in turn, um, you know, be beneficial to our operation. But, you know, I would tell somebody who's young, who's just getting into their career, try to articulate a vision um, to the people you're working with, to the people who were in a position to help you, because I think by and large, people will help. Um, they, they'd like to help people uh, be successful if they understand what successful is defined as. Um, you know, everybody has their own you know, version of what that looks like. Some people, it's about the money. Some people, it's about learning. Some people, it's about a springboard to a job in a similar but you know different industry. Some people want to work. Some people want to be, uh, you know, a GM for you know Major League Baseball team, but they have to start somewhere. Uh, I'll tell you a right. quick quick story. Um, I should have said this earlier when you asked how I landed here. Um, the way I ended up in this industry, and there, there is a direct correlation to it, is another time I was in a bookstore. I spent a lot of time in bookstores before. Yeah, uh, so do I. I love bookstores. Before, uh, you know, you can buy them on Amazon and get them delivered the next day. And I see this book on a shelf, and it's called Working at the Ballpark. And, and I still have it. Okay. It's, on, it's, it's on a shelf um, in our lobby. And it was a book, and every chapter was somebody who worked in sports in a different capacity. One person was a groundskeeper. One person was a radio announcer. One person was a team executive. You know, it it just ran the gamut of all these different things. But the common denominator, of course, where they they were all just thrilled to be working in sports and to be doing what they wanted to do. And that was the direct impetus for me to get from finance into sports business. Because at that point, I didn't mind what I did, but I, I always felt like this is where I belonged. And, and, and that was kind of the catalyst, was reading some of these stories and, and, and getting a sense that, you know, there, there's a whole wide world out there of 
opportunities in the sports industry. And, and they don't all look the same. You don't have to be that narrow in your scope, but you can, you can get to anywhere uh, if you start somewhere. It's so true. I've had, we've had over 430 episodes of this show. I've interviewed all types of people across the industry. And it's always so clear to me that the sport, sports industry is just another big business. And they're the same opportunities in this world that you could find anywhere else, except you get some that are specialized, you know, scouts and coaches yeah. and things of that nature might not be everywhere, but you can find your pathway here. And there's that opportunity that can align with purpose and entertainment and fun and mm-hmm. really put that nice envelope on it. And I think that's why so many people want to work in our industry. And I think that's a testament to, you know, the environment as a whole. And uh, I am just so thankful for you coming on the show today and teaching us more about this sector that I just wasn't all that familiar with. And I know our audience will really appreciate. So, Bob, thank you for coming on today and, and sharing so much insight. Thanks for having me, Brian. It was enjoyable. A lot of fun. Thank you to Bob for coming on the show. Again, this is an area that I haven't covered a lot myself. And maybe that is my own fears coming to the to, to forefront here. I mean, sports finance isn't exactly my expertise. So maybe I shied away from it subconsciously. But getting into this conversation with Bob and really getting him to explore some of the nuance of the field and some of the things he looks for when hiring and developing people within this really interesting stuff. So I'm glad that we broached it and got into it today. Thank you for listening, everybody. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. It's so important to continue growing into 2022, which is what our goal is. Growth, growth, growth. So share with your friends and keep listening. I appreciate every single one of you. 